today I'm joined by Jade Ferguson. Jade, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'd like to begin with discussing your political socialization. So growing up, thinking a few years back, did you discuss politics at home or with family or friends or at school? Yeah, I definitely talked about politics. I definitely grew up in a very um, politically oriented household. So my parents divorced around when I was two, um, partially because they had different political beliefs, which I think is pretty ironic, but super interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. So my mom, she was relatively, you know, a Trump supporter growing up or, you know, aligned with a lot of um, socially conservative values. And my dad, on the other hand, is this like, you know, radical, like, abolitionist communist um so definitely on opposing sides of the political spectrum and i think in terms of us just discussing politics it was sort of like um you know i was growing up in a definitely like an ideological battlefield growing up just because Mm -hmm. i was um, confronted with very conflicting and contradictory views about how power is arranged i think um, since I grew up largely with my mom growing up in a very um, traditionally, you know, Catholic household, um, you know, just beliefs in like homosexuality um, and, you know, race not being as, you know, conducive with what my dad's views were, um, mm-hmm. was definitely challenging just in terms of how um, I navigated that at a young age, especially as someone who's biracial. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know, trying to navigate that hyphenated identity of what it is to be an African-American, what it is to be a Filipino-American was definitely challenging. But um, I think, you know, just having the opportunity to be confronted with different beliefs definitely um, informed how I view politics today. Wow, that's really interesting. So I'm curious, how did each of your parents speak about the government in a more negative or a more positive way? Um, yeah, so I think you know, without um, generalizing any community whatsoever, I think there's a general mentality among immigrant communities of this, you know, American dream where, you know, immigrate from your home country, come to America, um, you work hard and you get where you need to be. And I think in terms of how the government is supposed to serve the people, I think my mom definitely thought about the government as this being like savior, this protector, um, someone who ensures your rights and someone who does legitimately do that. And I think when you compare, you know, the conditions she did face growing up in the Philippines versus the conditions she faced, um, you know, when she immigrated to the, to the States, I think it's very clear that she had a lot of American patriotism and a lot of belief in the government supporting her and supporting, you know, her stimulation into, you know, white capitalist society. And I think that definitely informed her beliefs that, you know, the government was there to support me, support her, um, and support her dreams to, you know, make money, um, you know, have a stable household, um, versus my dad, however, um, you know, he grew up mainly in Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, in like a low-income, predominantly black neighborhood, um, and he experienced a lot of police brutality growing up, and I think his dis- disillusionment, particularly with, you know, politics and the government, stemmed from, you know, a major distrust in the two-party system, especially, and a major distrust in, um, you know, a predominantly white government to support, um, you know, the social rights and, you know, civil rights of the black community. So I think, yeah, definitely my parents had, again, you know, conflicting views about how the government actually works, 
um, versus like the democratic ideals they purportedly self, you know, self-proclaim to have. Mm-hmm. So how did you balance those differing viewpoints while growing up? Yeah, I guess I'd just like to like offer disclaimer, you know, I think both of my parents are wonderful people. And I think they, you know, of course, did their best to raise me, given the circumstances of, you know, the divorce and um, their marriage. But I think that in navigating that, it was definitely difficult just because, you know, I grew up in a very, you know, predominantly Filipino household. I was, you know, basically the only black person in my family aside from my dad. Um, And I think being able to be a part of communities that, you know, had different experiences with racism, especially institutional racism, was definitely difficult just because of the amount of, you know, pervasive anti-blackness that is in the Filipino community that I was born Mm -hmm. into. I think in navigating how the Filipino American community is treated by the government versus how the African American community is treated by the government was definitely a key, um, you know, battlefield in my life throughout my childhood, just because I think, you know, being told by my mom that, you know, you know, you, you, you're not like other black people, you know, you have these privileges. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just having that whole black exceptionalist narrative was very damaging just because it delegitimized some of the struggles that I did face in school and I did face mm-hmm. with class um, who were, you know, racist or, you know, did, did face and experiencing microaggression growing up. And I think just having the views that the government, um, you know, afforded privileges to the Filipino side of my family, I think I sort of went through, a, you know, identity crisis because I think growing up I didn't have as much as an opportunity to confront my blackness in a safe and comfortable space. And I think, especially as a child, just thinking of myself as Filipino because I was surrounded by Filipino family all the time, I think was definitely dehumanizing just in the sense that the hyper visibility of my differentness in family settings at family parties um, and birthday parties, I think was definitely challenging. But in doing so, I think that, being able to go to schools that were generally diverse, I was able to definitely realize um, how a lot of my family's point of views weren't really matching up with how I, you know, experienced the world and experienced, um, you know, academic settings where people, you know, saw me as not Filipino. You know, they just saw me Mm -hmm. as black. I think just navigating those two different identities, um, two different worlds, one in the household, one, you know, in the workplace, one in the, in schools was definitely, um, eye-opening, um, and definitely pushed me to challenge, um, the beliefs I was indoctrinated into. So it sounds like identity is pretty tied up with how you view the government and politics in general. Yes, Definitely. I'd like to move more into discussion of broader economic systems. So do you have a particular memory of first coming into contact with the concept of capitalism? And then as a part two, what do you associate with the word capitalism today? Yeah, I think it was really interesting because I think growing up, 
um, the main like mentality that I was socialized into was like make money. So it wasn't necessarily be happy, but it was like to make money, support yourself, um, not have to rely on other people, um, you know, work as hard as you can in order to succeed in a competitive capitalist economy. And I think a lot of the conversations, the first conversations I had about capitalism were with my dad, especially mm-hmm. in him you know, talking about his struggles um, growing up and not having a lot of money and also with my mom, you know, growing up, um, coming to the States, you know, of course, like not having enough money either, you know, um, not having like stable housing security. I think the first time I heard, I guess the word capitalism was just in the context of like money making and poverty um, and how a lot of the times, um, you know, the white hegemonic power structures in the U.S. are not built to support immigrant um, and marginalized communities. And I think I heard that definitely on both sides of my family, of course, more so on others. But I think those were definitely my first, um, you know, encounters with what capitalism meant. But I would say, like, I didn't develop a well-rounded view of capitalism until I came to college. I think Mm -hmm. being sort of like, you know, government, theory-based classes definitely, you know, laid out the framework for what capitalism really was and what it meant, but it also challenged me to separate, you know, what, you know, largely, like, white government teachers told me versus, like, what, like, African-American studies teachers told me about capitalism. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, in working, especially at D.C. Jobs with Justice, which is, you know, a labor justice, um, you know, anti-capitalist nonprofit, I think I definitely learned... Um, and adopted the point of view that capitalism is not, you know, meant to support the masses. And I think in defining it today in my own life, I think I just see it as, you know, another, you know, larger oppressive system that, you know, extracts profits from marginalized bodies of color um, and supports largely upper middle class white lifestyles um, and material self-interest that are built on, again, the exploitation of people who, don't have the opportunity to participate in social opportunities and political opportunities that are traditionally open to dominant social groups. And I think, you know, a lot of people think of capitalism just in terms of like, you know, economics. And I think that in thinking about capitalism more so as a cultural mentality and just this idea that one's social capital or inherent worth is ascribed to the degree to which they succeed in a competitive economy is also important. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you. So now I'm kind of wondering how, if you could speak a little bit more about how courses at Georgetown have informed your perspective about government. I do think just classes like, you know, international relations, comparative political systems definitely expose me to, you know, a hierarchical system at Georgetown in which a lot of, you know, Eurocentric, Euro-American-centric narratives about capitalism are built on this glorification of, like, neoliberal orthodoxy and how if you work hard enough, you can get where you need to be or where you want to be um, would be a better way to put it. Um, And I think that definitely contrasted, you know, classes that I took. um, For example, I took a class this semester on inequality, gender, and the prison, which talked a lot about how the prison industrial complex, which is obviously, you know, grounded in capitalist beliefs, um, works to sort of 
coalesce the corporate interests and political interests in mass incarceration, especially the mass incarceration of black and brown bodies and low income from low income communities. And I think that definitely contrasted a lot of the theoretical frameworks that were posed by classes that are required of SFS Mm -hmm. students, comparative political systems and international relations. And I think just the fact that classes that are taught by white teachers and are taught um, in terms of like your American narratives are the required classes at Georgetown, I thought was really interesting just because they have that inherent legitimacy um, and just because they're like some of the largest classes um, I've ever taken, mm-hmm. you know, the lecture side halls. Um, and I think also just in terms of like the classroom makeup and how many of the students identify as, you know, students of color or queer students of color versus, you know, upper middle class white students, I think was very different um, just because the classroom space wasn't necessarily focused on, you know, building a safe and comfortable space for, you know, students to, especially students of color, to express their, you know, experiences with institutional racism rooted in capitalism, there are more so spaces to debate, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. there's definitely a difference between debate in classes taught by white teachers versus dialogue um, in classes, you know, still maybe taught by white teachers, but taught in the context of African-American studies or women and gender studies or justice and peace studies. Um, And I think that was the main difference that I observed. Mm, Thank you. And now I'd like to move on to discuss how you view the government's role in relation to its citizens by discussing a few contemporary examples. First, I know you got a chance to check out New Zealand's 2019 budget, which prioritized the, quote, well-being of its citizens rather than traditional goals like productivity or economic growth. And my question for you is, is this a desirable budgetary model for the U.S.? And if it is desirable, is it attainable? Yeah, um, I think it's definitely desirable. I think the larger question is, is it attainable? And again, like, I don't want to be a cynical person, but I think, you know, what's key to social justice organizing is having that constructive imagination and it's having a hope for a better future. So I think having a model, again, for example, like we've been hearing a lot of calls to defund the police. And I think this is definitely and aligns with the case study that you, you know, explain. If we were to defund and divest resources from police departments and instead you know, funnel them into social services such as improving mental health, um, reducing poverty, um, whether that be through funding, you know, youth and employment programs, um, rehabilitation programs, and again, like addressing inequalities that arise from, you know, gentrification um, and other systems of oppression. I think that's definitely a more desirable alternative to the certain um, capitalist mentalities that are romanticized in the U.S. Again, like, is it attainable? You know, well, I think that and saying it's not attainable and saying that the capitalist system we, you know, inhabit today is inevitable, I think inherently undermines the role in which, you know, man-made systems such as capitalism are, you know, social constructs. And I think Mm -hmm. being able to think about how if things are desirable, then we should strive to attain them. And I think New Zealand's proposed budget model is definitely something that we should model ourselves after, but also just keeping in mind that the U.S. does have, you know, certain geographical and demographic constraints that are, you know, similar but also different from New Zealand. So I think 
and being able to design a model that's fit to um, support the interests of the specific minority groups that are most, you know, native to the U.S. is definitely important in developing a model that's not just copying what another country does, but also adapting to the current conditions that we face in America. Thank you so much. And in that same vein about what the government's role should be, can you tell me about how you view the U.S. government's role in relation to the income and wealth inequality in our country, particularly along racial lines? Is this situation within the government's purview and something it should be addressing? Yeah, I think it's definitely a slippery slope because I think that in thinking about income and wealth equality um, and resource like accumulation as the key to citizen well-being and ultimately like satisfaction and happiness in one's life is also problematic in the sense that, you know, we're expecting marginalized communities to, you know, meet the level of socioeconomic power that is that, you know, white upper middle class families have. And I don't necessarily think that's something we should strive for. I think just the idea of excessive material comfort is oppressive in itself, um, just because it assumes that um, certain archetypes of blackness, such as, you know, working class communities aren't as respectable or as ideal as, you know, upper middle class black lives. And I think, yes, the goal should be in fostering, not necessarily wealth, but in fostering an equitable distribution of resources. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, not necessarily like, I mean, I don't want to get too radical in this call because I don't know who's <laughs> going to be listening, but, you know, ultimately in the long term, there would be like an abolition of private property and it would be, you know, community controlled so that everyone would have relatively an equal access to resources. So not necessarily having like living in excessive wealth and having, you know, upper middle class income, but essentially not thinking of income in class terms at all. So just thinking Mm -hmm. it in survival, thinking of it in terms of, you know, reaching a base level of material comfort and not having this infatuation with commercialism. And again, in terms of the government's role in doing that, I think it's definitely the government's role. I think, however, that the government should be listening to the grassroots organizers and people from marginalized communities who are doing the work to increase their situations and better their conditions. I think when the government starts defining and projecting its own narratives about how to increase wealth, then it becomes problematic because much of the government, again, is dominated by, you know, a white bourgeoisie. So I think Mm -hmm. it's the government's role, but I think, the government needs to expand representation first before it begins um, projecting these plans to increase wealth equality without incorporating the voices who are most vulnerable to wealth inequality. Thank you. My next question is about what the government is and maybe should be doing. Is the U.S. social safety net through programs like SNAP or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families working and doing what it's supposed to be doing? I think, again, like, every step towards progress matters, but again, like, how progressive is that, you know, going to be? And I think the social safety net that we have today is definitely not working. I think it definitely works for some people, but those some people have 
the privilege of being able to meet the requirements of that net and of those programs. And I think just in thinking of terms about the amount of people who work in occupations that are criminalized, for example, sex work, um, and a lot of those people don't even have access to, you know, participating in SNAP or low-income housing tax credit. And I think that the reason the safety net doesn't work is because it's based on prevailing mythologies of criminality that exclude a lot of black and brown voices from even participating, right? And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times when we think about poverty, we infantilize people. We say, you know, you haven't worked hard enough. That's why you're penniless. That's why you don't have enough money to support yourself. And I think a lot of the social safety net programs that we have in place today are built, again, on this white savior saviorist mentality that, you know, white people are going to go out and save people from their purported destitution and from their poverty. And I think that shouldn't be the main goal. I think safety net programs should, again, be put in the hands of those who need the most, but should be directed by the most vulnerable. So they shouldn't be necessarily government programs, because I think when we put them as government programs, then the government has arbitrary discretion to determine who is worthy enough to participate in those programs. And I think that's not something we want to do. So I think if we're thinking about like other mechanisms to better the social safety net, I think it would be, again, to listen to people who have been excluded from those safety nets and listen to the needs they need in order to be guaranteed access to those programs. And I think that also requires us to see um, certain forms of poverty as also valid. Because I think when we think about, for example, undocumented immigrants and the amount of undocumented immigrant communities that are, you know, projected into like situations of poverty merely because they can't access social safety nets um, is really important. So I think we need to combat first you know, prevailing mythologies of criminality that, um, you know, criticize undocumented um, workers, criticize, you know, sex workers, especially trans sex workers of color who don't have access to affordable housing or temporary assistance. So I think just, you know, first deconstructing those cultural mentalities is key to building safety nets that are more inclusive and more diverse. Thank you. So we have a class together about gentrification, and in it, we've been learning about some housing for all campaigns, and there are obviously similar ones for healthcare for all. So my question is, do you view things like healthcare or housing as commodities or as human rights? If you view them as commodities, how do you see that the free market increases access to them? And if you see them as human rights, is the U.S. government equipped to guarantee health care or housing for all people? Yeah, I think housing, health care, education should all be human rights. But I think the way that they're positioned today, they're definitely commodified, over-commodified, and they're treated as, you know, private property, private experience that are not made equitably accessible to the most vulnerable populations. And I think If we continue to view them as commodities, um, the market, the free market that we live in is not giving access to people who don't either have the money, who don't have the social stature or privilege to engage in, you know, housing or healthcare that is affordable to them. I think more so if we view them as rights, 
I don't think the U.S. government is necessarily in the position to handle them as rights where it is right now. But I think in the long term, if we view them as collective rights that should be afforded to people, um, all people, all colors, all you know, classes, then we'd be able to understand that everyone should have the right to you know, live. It's basically about, you know, the right to survive. And I think mm-hmm. that when we exclude, you know, these survival rights from people who are already so triply, you know, doubly marginalized, then we begin to lose our sense of humanity. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, I think, <laughs> yeah, bottom line, they should be treated as human rights, but I don't know if they're going to be treated as human rights in the short term whatsoever. I think... Mm-hmm that the key to building a market that does treat them as um, collective liberties for all would be to focus more on grassroots organizing versus government support programs. I think when we focus a lot of like um, cooperatives and like especially housing cooperatives and grassroots organizing around um, affordable housing for low-income tenants, when we focus on people who are on the ground actually doing the work um, to change, you know, the prevailing power structures, then we understand that um, incorporating experience, firsthand experience is more important than, you know, reading a research article written by some white ap- academic who has no, who's very far distance from the lives of people who are the most marginalized. And I think, mm-hmm. again, this discrepancy between writing academic you know, articles or theories on like universal health care or universal housing versus actually people who are being affected by policy is a discrepancy that needs to be bridged so that there isn't a gap between research and actually what is going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. So I'm curious where your view came from that the people who are most affected by these problems should be the ones making decisions. Because obviously, Georgetown is a very politically active school, and I've spoken to some students who have said, you know, working government is the best way to affect social change by making laws, implementing policy, etc. So I'm wondering if you had anything to share about where that view came from. Yeah, I think it's a really um, complicated question. Because when I first came to Georgetown, you know, embarrassed to say this, but I wanted to be in government and I wanted to be like president and it was just not (laughs) at all. But I think that, you know, you know, going through my college experience and being able to work at like DC jobs of justice and volunteer at like the Latino economic development center. And now at collective action for safe spaces, which are all, you know, collectives or nonprofits that are very rooted in, abolitionist perspectives, you know, abolish private property, abolish the police, a lot of, you know, radical, you know, super progressive beliefs. And I think in thinking about that, that really shaped my view on why being anti-establishment is important. And I think mm-hmm. while, while it's definitely significant to have marginalized voices in positions where they can direct policy and direct law. I think that in perpetuating the narrative that the easiest or most effective way to make change is to run for government is extremely problematic. I think Mm -hmm. that a lot, even today, a lot of times when we have 
um, people of color in positions where they do have the enormous, you know, authority to make decisions, they are more so puppets of larger government structures that are built, again, on white capitalist society. Um, and I think, you know, again, without calling any politicians, you know, actually, I'll call some politicians on black. I think just <laughs> thinking about, like, you know, Barack Obama, for example, he obviously mm-hmm. did a lot for the black community. You know, he, he was a face. He gave you, you know, a sense of inspiration for, you know, little black girls and, you know, um, a lot of black voices in their childhood, you know, who saw someone on TV who looked like them, who identified mm-hmm. with them. And I think that was very important in building solidarity. But at the same time, you know, Barack Obama was the one who built, you know, the detention camps at the border. You know, Barack mm-hmm. Obama was the one who supported wars in the Middle East. So I think just the idea of power, no matter what person of whatever racial identity you, uh, you possess, I think when people are in power, power acts as a sort of aphrodisiac. And I think when people have that amount of privilege, they're not in the position to support those who don't have that power. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I guess the question is, what do you do then? You know, what else do you do with your life? Do you want to make a change? And I think, again, it's difficult because a lot of the careers and occupations that I think do make the most general, genuine changes, like organizing, for example, grassroots organizing um, and activism, I think those are the careers that are most, you know, ridiculed by capitalism Mm -hmm. and don't receive the most money. And, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, being passionate also means that you might go hungry. And I think that being able to, you know, first evade hypocrisy in your own life, but also find a career where you're able to survive, you know, obviously entails that you have to participate in capitalism. I feel like any job that Mm -hmm. you do you have to participate in some system of oppression. And I think that's definitely a disheartening reality that we live in, um, but it's also not surprising. Um, I think there are definitely ways in people's lives that you can, you know, minimize the amount of oppression that you do. And I think, for example, that would be not running for government. I know that Mm -hmm. is like a very unpopular point of view, but I feel like a lot of people who run for government run for government for the wrong motivations. I think a lot of people say, you know, they want to fight for marginalized communities that, to which they are part of, but that's also stemming from a desire for power, a desire for authority, a desire for fame. And I think having those mentalities and having those motivations are like central to political mindsets. And I think that would be one of the reasons why I wouldn't see, you know, going to government as key mm-hmm. or making genuine change. Because when you're in government, you you should be essentially uplifting the voices of grassroots organizers. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that if you just go to the avenues that are actually supporting people or actually engaging with them on the ground, then that would be more so effective in facilitating change. As a quick follow-up, are there any experiences in particular that kickstarted this change of perspective? So, for instance, your work with DC Jobs for Justice or a collective action for safe spaces? Yeah, I think that was definitely what made up the most of it. Um, I think I went on a CSJ, like, alternative spring breaks program mm-hmm. on focused on worker justice, where I met with, like, DC Jobs for Justice, with, um, you know, United, um, I forget the name. United Students Against Sweatshops, just a lot of labor justice nonprofits. And I think in being able to talk to workers 
um, and low-income tenants that were specifically affected by capitalism, affected by government policy and decisions definitely informed my beliefs. Um, yeah, so I would say that made up the most of it. I feel like the rest would just be in being able to navigate different clubs that I joined on campus. Um, so I definitely, like, entered Georgetown as someone who was very, you know, liberal, establishment Democrat, and I was in, you know, Georgetown um, University's College Democrats. And again, like, no shade whatsoever on them. I think my experience in that organization just pushed me to sort of question the two-party political system um, and more so engage with, you know, again, abolitionist mindset that didn't really view, you know, party politics as the key to eliciting change. Thank you. And as we near the end of our time, I just have two more quick questions. So with everything basically closed because of the pandemic, essential workers remain at the front lines. These include our nurses, grocery store clerks, warehouse workers, and bus drivers. These jobs are often low paid and people of color are overrepresented in these professions. So my question is, has this situation changed how you view labor and do you think it will change how our society values different kinds of labor? Yeah, I think the way our society views labor, again, is very racially charged and very charged along gender um, and class lines. And I think just the irony of people who are in low-paid jobs who are predominantly people of color are essentially essential workers is very interesting, um, but it's also very eye-opening because I think a lot of the times in capitalist society, we glorify professions and careers that are not necessarily focused on survival, but focused on um, satisfaction and satisfaction that often comes at the expense of people who don't have access to similar opportunities, such as education, um, especially higher education. And I think in thinking about labor as something that defines someone's own social worth is very problematic, but it's, you know, again, the society that we live in. And I think just in terms of like the global pandemic and how we see a lot of the jobs that we need the most are people who are in, um, who possess like marginalized social identities. And I think just that just shows how much of our society is built on the exploitation of black and brown bodies and how much of our society is reliant on people who don't have the privilege of directing um, prevailing media narratives and narratives about what self-worth means. And I think just like narratives that view low-paid jobs as quote-unquote menial labor or as quote-unquote possessed by, you know, welfare queens and other derogatory terms are all built on this idea that what serves capitalism the most um, is built on very perverse American democratic ideals of pursuing higher education, engaging in business, glorifying enterprise, participating in government. And I think seeing those professions as not necessarily necessary, but as just veils that cover up oppression is very important to interpreting how the labor market, again, is built to serve upper middle class white citizens but is founded upon the work of lower income black people. Um, mm -hmm. And I just thinking about that will definitely change a lot of people's views on the pandemic and how 
we're going to move on in the wake of such, you know, destruction and exploitation. Thank you so much. And this is my last question. It's just because I'm curious, but I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what you your work was like um, with DC Jobs for Justice. So what you did and what you focused on. Yeah, so I basically, they basically just sent me to a bunch of protests. That was um, a lot of my work um, where I would just go to protests um, that were focused on labor justice organizing with labor unions, with worker cooperatives, um, with um, low-income tenants seeking, you know, rent control against, you know, landlord abuses. Um, and then the other half of my work was doing a lot of research on housing policy, doing a lot of research on wage theft and workplace abuse. Um, so I did a lot of outreach. Um, I created a lot of, you know, pamphlets and know your rights materials, um, which I would pass out to workers um, outside the subway at restaurants. Um, well, not restaurants, but, you know, like stores, like grocery mm -hmm. stores. Um, and I would also do a lot of work um, that was focused on like the research of decriminalizing sex work in D.C. Um, also, um around the time that a lot of the ICE raids were um, increasing in D.C., I did a lot of outreach around that and educating um, businesses on how to support undocumented workers. Um, so a lot of research, a lot of outreach, um, a lot of um, organizing social media materials um, and all that jazz. That sounds like a great experience. So thank you so much for being here, Jade. I really appreciate it um, and have a great night. You too. Have a good night.